Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen as we go through the book of Revelation. My name is Dr. Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church to Queen um, on our website, dequeen.church. You can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And feel free to drop a like or a share of this podcast if you find it helpful. In the last episode, we concluded Jesus' expression to these seven specific churches uh, that he uh, spoke a specific word to those churches, but also the words he spoke to those churches are applicable to us today, as he said repeatedly, if you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is applicable to us, that we can apply the principles that Jesus spoke into the life of those churches into our context today. Well, here in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus has finished speaking about uh, the information to the churches, and he starts talking, uh, or uh, John starts seeing uh, a vision about what is yet to come. And so here in Revelation 4 and 5, it's setting the stage for what is yet to come. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, he says there a voice like a trumpet. This indicates who is speaking. This is Jesus' voice. Uh, and it's described in this same way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. So Jesus speaks of things that he says there must take place. These are not simply future events, but they are events that must happen before the end is to come. Uh, and, and Jesus tells John, come up here. This is specifically to John. This isn't a reference to the rapture here. The, when he says, I, come up here, I will show you. Um, that is in the, um, uh, the singular there. He's not doing the universal, everyone come up here. No, he's talking specifically to John. Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. And John sees an open door. This open door means it's an invitation to come. John's invited uh, through the open door into heaven to witness the vision from the perspective of Jesus. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Some translations say Sardius there. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. See, the Holy Spirit overtook him. He says, I was in the Spirit. He willingly gave himself over to the Spirit, just as he was back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. But what's interesting, so in Revelation 1, 10, he's in the Spirit. And here again, in Revelation 4, 2, he's in the Spirit. Now, somewhere between chapter 1, verse 10 and chapter 4, verse 2, it seemed as though John had stopped being in the Spirit. So, he was in the Spirit in chapter 1, and then he stopped, and now again in chapter 4, he's in the Spirit again. He resumes that condition uh, here, uh, which is interesting. I mean, in the same vein, we today, there are times that we are in the Spirit, uh, and it's not a, a um, constant experience because our attention wanes and our focus fades. But when we become especially attuned and, and focused 
on the the Spirit's presence and God's power, we slip into the Spirit in the same way John does. But he says he was in the Spirit, and then he sees a throne that's standing in heaven. Now, the word throne uh, uniquely is mentioned 62 times in the New Testament. Of those 62 times, 47 are in Revelation. In addition, John uses the word throne in nearly every chapter in Revelation. Its importance to what is yet to come is, is vitally emphasized here. And he says, what he sees emanating from the throne are, are these colors, uh, jasper and carnelian, uh, most likely red and, and green, red and green stones. They were also the first and last stones on the breastplate of the high priest in the Jewish scriptures. Um, and that could indicate complete power and, and presence of God. John also sees a rainbow that looked like an emerald, a, a green rainbow. This, this green rainbow, it says, around the throne, encircling the throne. The rainbow's complete circle, it, it could be a representation of the eternal covenant of God, reminiscent of the covenant with Noah and the rainbow of Old Testament Scripture. But here we have it, uh, a complete circle around the throne, so it is uh, the complete uh, eternal covenant of God. It's seemingly uh, simply John's best attempt to describe the glory of God in the throne room. Uh, you got to put yourself in John's position here. He's seeing God in God's throne room and doing his best with the language skills that he has to describe what he sees. And what he describes are colors. Notice he doesn't describe any particular facial features or body type, what he sees. Well, the best he can do is simply to describe colors in and around God's throne. God's glory flows as if it were a magnificent green rainbow all around the throne. But then John, having taken in the presence of God, notices there's something else in the throne room. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. So he sees uh, twenty-four of the thrones, and, and on these twenty-four of the thrones are what he calls elders. Now, elder was a biblical office, uh, a leader, but who specifically are these twenty-four? Twenty-four thrones, twenty-four elders. You know, there are some people who see these elders as, as angels because of some of the things they do in Revelation. And angels are referenced as elders in Isaiah 24, 23, but there is a specific distinction drawn between angels and these elders in Revelation 7, 11. So they seem to not be angels. And we also know that throughout the book of Revelation, multiples of the number 12 are repeatedly used symbolically. We see the New Jerusalem actually in Revelation 21, uh, when it comes down after heaven and earth have passed away. And the new Jerusalem, which will be uh, the eternal heaven, the eternal city, um, it, it descends in Revelation 21, and uh, it has 12 gates into which people can enter the city. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on its gates, and uh, the city itself rests on 12 foundations. 
Um, and on those 12 foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. And so there we have a multiple of 12, 12 and 12 all around the eternal city. Uh, and so that's kind of what I believe is these 24 elders uh, representative of the complete work of God, the uh, Old Testament scripture, the New Testament scripture, um, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Not that these are the 12 sons of Jacob, and these are physically in actuality, the 12 apostles, these guys are representative of God's completed work. Um, this is uh, God's unified um, body of believers surrounding God himself. And they are clothed in white garments. They represent victory, just like the crowns that they're wearing represent victory. But the Greek word used here for crown is different from the one that sit that would sit upon God's head. It's, it, the, the crowns on the twenty-four elders are is not a royal crown. It is a wreath of victory, like one earned in the Olympics. A wreath of victory, contrasting the royal crown. And so John sees this, verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Lightning and thunder demonstrate the awe-inspiring power of God. And then again, we have the seven spirits of God, the completeness of the Holy Spirit, just as was demonstrated back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. And the Holy Spirit is there before the throne. Notice his, his proximity to the throne. That's very significant. The elders are around it. The Holy Spirit is before it. It is a nearness that is not experienced by anyone else because of the Holy Spirit, but because of, of his proxim or because of his location before the throne and our access to God through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can bring us into the throne room of God because of where he is situated. Verse six. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So all in front of the throne, on the floor, there's a bunch of what appears to be. Notice he says, as it were, a sea of glass. He doesn't say it was glass, it was crystal. He just says that was the appearance it gave off. John is, again, trying to give the best description he can with the words at hand. Uh, he says it's like it was glass. Now, that's an important distinction because glass of that particular day in the first century was normally opaque, and clear glass would either have been non-existent. No one, you know, very few people would have seen clear glass because it was so exorbitantly expensive. It was something so fantastic that it was thought to be reserved for royalty. And so here it is, before God's throne, and it, you know it could be representing God's God's holiness, and the and that only the holy can cross it to approach God. And now through Jesus possessing the Holy Spirit, Christians have been made holy, and they can thus approach the throne of God. And He also has these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now. Whoever these creatures are, we will get a closer look at them in the next few verses, but they have eyes all around them. These four creatures see everything, both God and creation. And the importance of these creatures is their closeness, again, to the throne of God. 
And being so close to God, look at what they do. They constantly praise Him. They praise God throughout the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4.8, and chapter 19, verse 4. In all of those instances, these four living creatures are praising God. And they also have a very specific role to play in unfolding the events yet to come, both in chapter 6 and in chapter 15. So these four living creatures in the presence of God are constantly praising God and they are demonstrating or or being instrumental instruments in the implementation of God's will. Now I see these guys, I mean, that, that should be what we aspire to do is if we are in the presence of God, we should be worshiping God at every opportunity, praising God at every opportunity, and uh, being used instrumentally in the implementation of God's will. We should praise God and fulfill God's will, just as these four living creatures do here and throughout the book of Revelation. Let's see a further description of these guys in verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So they have various appearances. And lots of different um, scholars have drawn meaning from their specific um, appearances. You know, there is a prophecy um, in the book of Daniel uh, that is similar to this, not the exact same, but it is similar um, because Daniel also saw some things that are related to the end of the world. But there is a particular rabbinic saying that has very similar language to this, and it says that the mightiest of the birds is the eagle, the mightiest of the domestic animals is the ox, uh, the mightiest of the wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest of all is man, uh, each of them being representatives of all living creatures. And as a representative of all living creatures, they are demonstrating that all living creatures will take part in God's will and worship as they were originally intended before sin entered into the world, which these four living creatures do in the very next verse, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So they have six wings. Now, the six wings of angels around the throne of God brings to mind the seraphim of Isaiah chapter 6. Those angels there in Isaiah 6 had six wings also. They had two wings covering their faces, two wings covering their feet, and two wings used for flying. And again, here, these angels have eyes all around them. Eyes mentioned for the second time, emphasizing the all-seeing nature of these creatures. Now, notice also that it says they unceasingly praise God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's his that song is similar to what the seraphim sing in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. In Isaiah, those angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So praise comes from both uh, places, Isaiah and here in Revelation. 
and it is uh, a similar song talking about the holiness of God. But something else happens as these four living creatures are praising God. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we see that before the throne of God, praise is constantly being offered. It would seem as though God's presence draws worship from anyone who is within it. And by throwing down their crowns, the elders are demonstrating a a total subjection to God. Their crowns don't compare with the crown worn by the king. God is, in reality, the only one who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. And according to the 24 elders, God is worthy because he created everything. And everything he created continues to exist. And this is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he creates everything and he sustains everything because of his power. And so we see here in Revelation chapter 4, the, the throne room of God and praise being offered because of God's presence and God's nature. But then in Revelation chapter 5, someone new enters the scene. Verse 1 of Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So he's got... God has it in his right hand. John notices now for the first time something in God's right hand that seems to have been there the whole time. He, he, the right hand indicates importance about that which is contained within it. And he has a scroll in his hand. Now, this uh, scroll, it says, was written on the inside and on the outside. Uh, and this type of scroll would have been made out of papyrus, which was a particular kind of paper. They would take thin strips of this papyrus and in two layers and at right angles from one another, they would secure them together with glue and water and pressure. And they'd push it together until they uh, set, you know, and held fast with uh, the grains of the paper going, you know, vertically and horizontally. And typically they would write on the vertical side so that the pen would go over the paper easier than on the vertical side. And that's the side that would typically be used unless space was particularly important and and more space was needed. And then both sides would be used uh, where the contents would then be filled as much as as possible. And then seven seals were used to keep this particular uh, scroll um, held together. And it has seven seals. Now, we're seven we've seen before, and we will continue to see again. Seven seals means that this scroll is perfectly sealed. Seven, perfect, the perfect number, complete, full. Uh, it is perfectly sealed. In addition, and it, it would seem that since as each seal is broken uh, in Revelation chapter 6, the next chapter, 
something then occurs. So a seal is broken, something happens. So it would seem that when that each section of the scroll is individually sealed rather than all seven seals surrounding the entire scroll. So uh, in, ch- in the next chapter, a seal is broken, part of the scroll is opened, something happens. Then the next seal is broken, part of the scroll is opened, something happens. And so here um, in verse uh, two, it says, a mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice. So you have a really strong angel that issuing this challenge to the whole earth, the whole world. And the angel, though, mentions opening the scroll before he mentions breaking the seals. And now that seems backwards. In anyone's rational mind, you would have to break the seals before you could open it. That's just the way it works. But the angel mentions opening the scroll first. Uh, the con- that's because the concern of the angel is in opening the scroll. The opening of the scroll is mentioned first for emphasis. Naturally, if someone is, wor- is worthy enough to open the scroll and read it, they would be worthy enough also to break the seals. And so a, a search is put out for who can do this, who can open the scroll. Uh, look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So right out the bat, the scripture says no one was found worthy. No one could do it. And, and he mentions three locations. They looked in heaven, they looked on earth, and they looked under the earth. Now, these three locations, the mentioning of the three locations, could mean three or two different possible things. It could mean that no person was found worthy in heaven, on earth, or in hell, or it could indicate planes of existence, uh, that there is no heavenly beings, no living person, and no dead person under the earth um, that was found to be worthy. Now, whichever one is the right one or one we haven't even thought of yet, either way, no living or dead, angel or human, was able to open the scroll that is held in the hand of God. No person in heaven, earth, or hell is found to have the worth that would enable him to open the scroll, or, or honestly, even to look into it. And it says there that John weeps. He weeps. This is uncontrollable weeping, wailing. His weeping is loud. It's uncontrollable because of the lack of worth found among all creation. He had been given a task to write down the vision that would be revealed. He'd been given this task by Jesus himself to write down the vision that would be revealed. And if the scroll were not opened, he would not be able to fulfill that commission given him by Jesus. And so he weeps in regard to this. But as often happens, someone knows something that John does not. Taps him on the shoulder. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John was told here that there is, in fact, one who has been found to be worthy. 
And notice, he's at the center of everything that John had witnessed so far. He's in the middle of the four living creatures. Uh, he's before the, between the throne and the four living creatures. Uh, he he is, is in the midst of the elders. He's right there in the middle of everything. Jesus in the middle of everything. He's called by the elder, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now that's a phrase that's used only here. He is powerful. He's the Messiah, and his victory proves his worthiness. He, this, this line of the tribe of Judah, this references um, the words from Genesis 49.9 uh, about him uh, uh, speaking about this moment of Jesus. I mean, it's drawing on that allusion, um, but also speaking to a particular instance in Genesis 49. But then he says he is the root of David. Now, that's really interesting. Root of David, that phrase, it's a modified version of what appears in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. Uh, and they say, or they don't necessarily reference David specifically, they reference David's father. Uh, Isaiah 11.1 1 says the stump of Jesse. Isaiah 11.10 says the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. Uh, but it's... That both of those prophecies are referencing this moment, Jesus himself. Uh, David, though, is mentioned by the elder uh, as the root of David. Uh, it's mentioned here to emphasize the, the royal line of the Messiah that was assumed by Jesus. He calls him a la- <laughs> uh, he. There's this contrasting imagery. There's this contrasting imagery here. He's, Jesus is called the lion, and yet the appearance is of a dying lamb. This is, you have the lion, the symbol of victory and power, but turns out that he is standing as though a, he is a mortally wounded sacrificial lamb. And though he's standing as if he's mortally wounded, notice it says that uh, as though it had been slain. He appears. Appears as if he's been mortally wounded, but he is not. It is mentioned to remind us of his sacrifice. In addition, slain here is in the perfect tense, meaning that the power of his death continues on into eternity. The lamb imagery also fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53:7, Like a lamb that has been led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is prophecy fulfillment, and a demonstration of his sacrifice. And the lamb has seven horns. That number seven again, perfection. The horns, power. Seven horns would indicate perfect power. And he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, meaning uh, he is all seeing through the Holy Spirit. His proximity to the throne, or his proximity to the throne of God the Father, his possession of the fullness, the seven, of the Spirit, reveal here in this moment the unity of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. So Jesus goes up and takes, some, takes the scroll out of the hand of God. Now, interesting to note that if Jesus removes something from the hand of God, 
that thing in reality never leaves the hand of God because Jesus is God. Thus, for Jesus to take something from the hand of God is never to realistically take the thing from God's own possession. The scroll is taken from God, and as it is, praise erupts from the four living creatures and the 24 elders. The scroll is not even opened yet. And the creatures and the elders are already worshiping the Lamb in anticipation of what He is certain to do. That should be our response as well. Worshiping God for what He has done, yes, but also for what He is yet to do. And the elders have harps, uh, instruments of worship in one hand, and, and golden bowls holding uh, prayers in the other. These, this incense of prayer is referenced in Psalm 141 verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, it's interesting as well that though Christians are not valued on the earth, their prayers are so precious as to be offered in the presence of God in golden bowls. Ironically, what is valuable to God and worthless to the world, the prayers, is offered in items that are valued by the world and created by God golden bowls. Praise erupts. And we see this, this, this image of our prayers, even if at times we may feel as though we go unheard, this shows us resolutely that we are not. Our prayers are so valuable, they are constantly in God's presence as incense. Now, next week, we're going to explore more of uh, what happens immediately after this moment in the throne room, and then we're going to see what begins to happen as the seals on that scroll are broken. And so if you like this teaching or you feel as though it's been helpful, please uh, give it a like, uh, share it, subscribe to it. That will help us out tremendously. And and also take note, uh, as we have been exploring and we'll continue to explore, that you know these t- this teaching and these opinions expressed i mean uh, are what i believe the scripture there is saying but when it comes to the end times i could very well be absolutely wrong on a bunch of this stuff um uh, and and if you have a better idea please feel free to 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 send us an email and uh, so we can understand together a little bit better uh, but again thank you for listening and i will catch you in the next one